You're listening to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In long-term relationships, it's not always going to be smooth sailing. People have a tendency to fall into patterns that disrupt their sexual and intimate connection, and it eventually becomes time for a change. But how do you actually change your relationship? It's one thing to read a self-help book or to seek out resources, but it's another thing entirely to put everything you've learned into action. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to explore how to go about bringing change to your love life. We're going to start at the beginning. So let's say you're ready to make a change, but how do you get your partner on board? We're also going to discuss how to drop the societal imperatives that tell us what we should be doing in bed and how to chart your own course instead. We'll also talk about how to make sex more playful and pleasurable, the magic trick for accessing ecstasy, and so much more. I am joined once again by award-winning author Emily Nagoski. She wrote the New York Times bestselling books, Come As You Are, and the Come As You Are workbook. Her latest book is titled, Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections. Emily has a master's in counseling and a PhD in health behavior, both from Indiana University. This is going to be another fascinating conversation full of lots of practical insights and takeaways. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Have you ever wanted to study abroad before and learn about sex at the same time? Here's your chance. You can join me and the Sexual Health Alliance through our unique study abroad program on sex and culture. Our next course offerings are in May 2024 in Amsterdam and Berlin, where you'll have a chance to explore different cultures, engage in immersive learning experiences, and meet international experts in the field of sexuality, all while making new friends and having a lot of fun. Some of the topics we explore in these courses include sex education, sexual health, sex work, LGBTQ plus issues, kink practices, and more. Come meet amazing people, gain valuable insights, and have a transformative learning experience. Visit sexualhealthalliance.com to learn more and secure your spot today. Okay, Emily, let's talk more about creating lasting sexual connections. And I think a good place to start is with a super common question that you and I both get, which is, okay, but how do I get my partner on board? How do I convince my partner to make a change? You know, people who have read your work or my work often feel like they know what they need to know. They're ready to make a change. It feels really urgent. They feel super empowered. <laughs> yes, they are ready to go. But the reality is that change is a slow process and we need to focus on changing together. So tell us a bit about that. <laughs> How can you work more productively toward changing together? Yeah, change by yourself is hard enough. And let me not understate how difficult change is, but then changing together. People often have in this idea of like, okay, so how it's going to go is I learned this new thing. I'm going to explain it to my partner. Then they're going to know the new thing. Then they're going to have the same goal as me, and they're going to be 100% on board, just like that. And that's just not how change works. Fortunately for me, I have a degree in public health, basically. My PhD in health behavior was the same coursework as a master's in public health. And it was in my very first semester that I took Models and Theories of Health Behavior with Michael Reese, 8 a.m., 
two days a week. And that's where we learned about the stages of change model through the trans theoretical model that very pragmatically explains that people change gradually. They start in pre-contemplation. And this is where almost all of us are about almost everything in our lives, almost all the time. We are not even thinking about change. We wouldn't consider change. Like I said, we're busy. We have other things to worry about. We are not thinking about change. Then people move from pre-contemplation to contemplation. So maybe there's like a critical event that happens. Maybe they learn something new that transitions them into contemplation. Maybe they have an important conversation that transit. They start to think about change. They're considering it. They're open to the, like, what if? Just hypothetically, like, you know what? Maybe there is room for something we could be doing differently. And from pre-contemplation, pre-contemplation to contemplation, We are not yet at action. We go to preparation. You have to make some changes to create the space for the change that you want to make. So having a conversation about it is, it is in a way already creating change because look, you're having the conversation. And I'm sure you know one of the most things people struggle with is how do I talk to my partner about? How do I ask my partner to try this thing I had a fantasy about. And like, you know, how you do it is you say those words, which you just said to me, so we know you can say the words. The question is, what is the barrier that is preventing you from doing that? What are you afraid might happen if you did? And the responses generally are about, I'm afraid they're going to judge me, or I'm afraid I'm going to hurt them. Both of those things, really big, important obstacles. And so I often advise people to have a conversation about the conversation before you have the conversation. Like, what are the things, if we talked about it, just hypothetically, if we talked about our sex life, what are the things that you're afraid might go wrong? I'm afraid that if I told you some of the things I want to tell you, you would react judgmentally or with shock Or I'd be worried that you would take it personally and have your feelings hurt, even though it's not about you. You know how much I love you and I want you. And so what are we going to do to help each other to create space for if those difficult feelings happen? Have a conversation about the conversation. That's part of your preparation, your pre-contemplation, contemplation. Now you're preparing. You're having a conversation about the conversation. Then you get to action where you actually create the change. And there are, I mean, this is a whole half a chapter. There's specific kinds of questions that will help a person who is at a different place in the change process. After action comes maintenance. It's probably important to recognize that after maintenance comes relapse, because when life gets difficult, it is very easy to slide back into old patterns. And when it comes to sex, those old patterns are really deeply entrenched. So when life gets tough, it's very likely that people are going to slide back into old patterns. But then that's okay. The people who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term are not the ones who never lose sight of each other. They're the ones who find their way back. So don't worry about the relapse part. So acknowledging that it takes time for your partner, like if you're the person who committed to reading an 80,000 word book, you've been watching videos, you've been listening to podcasts, like you're the one who's motivated and it took you time to get to this place. 
It's going to take your partner time to get to this place. And the more you can turn toward where they are right now with kindness and compassion, patience, this is why admiring your partner is so important. It's why trusting your partner is so important, believing that they will do what they can. They will even bear a little burden for your benefit when you admire and trust your partner that way. You know they will move in a direction. And because they're a human being, it's going to take time. Yeah, I think everything you said there is so important. And I think you're so right that we often don't appreciate how long it took us to get to the point where we realized that a change was necessary or where we felt like we had the tools to actually make that change. You know, it might have been months or even years. We remember the light bulb, that moment, but not, like you say, the years of exploration and consideration. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's about giving your partner the space for them to also get to that light bulb moment. And so that might take months, maybe sometimes years. And I know that's the frustrating thing because when people want to change, they want it now. But when it comes to changing relationships, it just takes time. Yeah. You mentioned how people often fall into patterns in their relationships. And a big part of that has to do with all of these different imperatives that we feel, because we're often acting in ways that we think we're supposed to act when it comes to sex, right? There's the orgasmic imperative, the coital imperative, the desire imperative. You know, these are basically all of the scripts that we think we need to follow when it comes to sex. But these can be harmful to our sex lives when we're following them very rigidly. So, tell us a little bit about how we can start to dump the imperatives and start to make our own choices when it comes to sex. Yeah. So this language of imperatives comes from a great book called Mediated Intimacy by, I think, four authors, and I never remember their names, and I feel really bad about it, but I know Meg John Barker is one of them. So this book is an analysis of mainstream pop culture, including TV representations of, like, sex advice. and they generated this catalog of imperatives, the things that people are required to do in order to be good sexual people. My favorite one is the performance imperative, where you have an obligation to always be working on your sex life and be better like an employee who's working toward a promotion. Like this sense that if you're not trying to get better all the time, then there's something wrong with you. And the all the beauty and body imperatives of if your body isn't this, if you dare to be complacent and just freaking adore your body as the freaking fracking miracle that it is right now, how dare you? You have an imperative to change your body to make it lovable because we've been told that our bodies are not lovable when in fact they deeply are. So what can you do about this? Step number one is recognize that you have these imperatives buried really deeply, these assumptions. And the difficulty with unspoken assumptions is that they are unspoken. So articulate as many as you can. One of the activities when I was teaching human sexuality, I would have students write a script. Like, who is it who has the sex? Broadly speaking, like, what do their bodies look like? What age are they? What genitals were they born with? What is their gender identity? What did they do? What's step number one? What's step number two? And uh, broadly speaking, they would go around the bases where there's kissing and there's breast stuff and then there's genital stuff and then there's the home run, which is the intercourse imperative because we're just assuming the heterosexual imperative already. That script 
is a great place to start with learning what you can reject. So when you have that script in your head, know that all of that is a fiction. It is an invention. It has nothing to do with like what biologically or naturally humans are designed to do. Try starting your sex situation out in a totally different way. Let one of you be naked because that disrupts. Like you're supposed to like, broadly speaking, remove your clothes at approximately the same pace. So start with one of you naked and the other one not. Start with a mouth on toes, a body part or whatever body part is not typically included in your like beginning. Roll around like puppies. You are allowed to do anything that everybody is glad to do, right? You can fuck your partner's armpit if you want to fuck your partner's armpit. People love it when there's a name for things. It's called axillary intercourse, and it's absolutely a thing, and you can totally do it if you want to because you're allowed to do anything that everybody involved is glad to do. I mean, you can get the little games and things that, like, you roll dice and it tells you a thing to do. That can help. Like, the way that you feel about fucking your partner's armpit or having your toes sucked or having your elbows pinched, the way you feel about those things, about having one of you naked and one of you not, will tell you a lot about what those baseline imperatives are or were in your brain. And when you have a, I'm just not sure if I'm allowed to do that, you are allowed as long as everybody involved is glad to be there. And Give it a try, not because it's definitely going to become the thing you love doing, but because it will teach you that you're allowed to do anything, that you have permission to explore your body, that in fact, you have been boxed in by these scripts and these rules about who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to do sex. And the way you find your way to ecstasy and the kind of sex that is worth having year after year is the kind of sex that is right for you and for your partner and for this specific relation and this specific season of your life. And you can only find your way to the authentic sexuality of this relationship right now if you break out of all the preconceived notions. And again, I know it's not easy. One of the stories that I tell is actually from Ray McDaniel's book, Gender Magic. They write about going to a sex party and watching a friend of theirs riding a sex toy dressed in an inflatable dinosaur costume. Like, masturbating to orgasm on this sex toy in an inflatable dinosaur costume, you're allowed to do anything you like. Truly, there are no rules. Except everybody needs to be glad to be there. Yep, that is the golden rule when it comes to sex. Everybody is consenting and wants to be there. Glad to be there, free to leave with no unwanted consequences. And I think everything you said there highlights why it might be worth people thinking about sex as play. You know, people in the kink and BDSM community often refer to their activities as play. And when we start to think about sex through that context, sex is this place where you can freely explore. There's no end goal other than just having fun. And you can even be a bit silly. You know, that's where sex can be whatever you want it to be. And you can learn about yourself, your partner, and try new things. And you can 
play games, right? And that's something that you talk about a bit in the book. I know you mentioned like, yeah, you could buy the fuzzy dice or, uh, you know, some other prepackaged game, but people could also make up their own, right? So can you describe like a potential game that might be helpful for learning about your partner and exploring your desires together? You can take any children's game from the playground and adapt it. Mother, may I? Simon says, doesn't have to be Simon, doesn't have to be mother, can be Simone, (laughs) can be mama, can be daddy, can be darling, whatever you want, yes or no. I didn't say, Simon didn't say that you could, right? You can, so like you're in the middle of doing a thing and it's especially cool. So you're playing Simon Says. Simon Says, go down on me. Stop. Ah, I didn't say Simon Says, right? Or Simon Says, go down on me. Simon says, stop. It is a violation of the script in our brains to stop going down on somebody just like in the middle of whenever. Like there's a sort of like rule book about how long you keep going down on someone and what you do when you stop going down on someone. So if you say, Simon says, go down on me, Simon says, stop, and your partner stops, they're waiting for you to say, Simon says, what to do next. And maybe Simon says, read aloud to me from this erotic book now, right? Like change, like Simon says, doing things that do not follow the script, That anything that is not the thing you think is supposed to come next. Uh, I also recommend just a basic adaptation of, for all its faults, sensate focus therapy, where you're given a pretty rigid set of rules about who initiates and how, what body parts are touched by whom and when, the responsibilities each person has about self-assertion and self-protection, those rules about sensate focus, which you can look up anywhere on the internet, um, and that you can adapt to your specific relationship over a matter of weeks. You adjust how much your sensate focus activities look like what we usually consider sex. It gives you a chance to break the usual rules. And what bubbles up when you do that is all the feelings that you have about having been trapped in those rules for so long. What makes Sensate Focus so powerful as a therapy is not the series of steps that you go through, but the processing of all the feelings that you have about not doing it the usual way. Like you got into kind of like a rut for a reason. The way Peggy Kleinplatz talks about it is uh, one of the worst things you can do is to do what works relentlessly. You just, like, you do the thing that you know gets this person to orgasm, and then the thing you know gets you to orgasm, and that is the thing that you do every time. And then you change the rules. You start playing a different game. Maybe you use the rules of sensate focus. Maybe you use the rules of any childhood playground game. And you're going to have feelings because not talking about those feelings is what got you channeled into this one specific way of doing things. Yeah, I love all that. Throw out the old rules and scripts. It's so much about feelings. It's going to be about feelings. It's going to be about feelings and having that freedom to just explore and, again, not have that end goal in mind. Now, in your book, you talk about 
something that you call a magic trick for accessing ecstasy. And the term magic makes it sound mysterious and exciting, so I like that. But it might also give people the impression that it's super simple and easy. But unfortunately, nothing is ever super (laughs) simple and quite that easy when it comes to sex. But what is this magic trick and how can we apply it to our sex lives? You know... It's simple and easy in the way that cycling 100 miles is simple and easy. Like, what it takes is practice. Most people would be able to do it given enough practice. No one ever has to do it. There is no, like, fitness benefit to cycling 100 miles. Just just ride your usual 10 miles and you're good, right? Like, that's good. You never have to run a marathon. There is no benefit for your fitness to running a marathon. It's about the challenge. It's about building up to an intense experience. And the magic trick is one of those. And I call it the magic trick because that is how it felt when I stumbled into it in my 20s when I was in grad school and had way more time to masturbate than I do now, where what it ultimately boils down to is moving your body in a rhythm with someone else potentially or with other people moving your body in time with other people for a shared purpose with, obviously, mutual consent. And this does not have to be a sexual thing. My sister and I actually write about something very similar in Burnout, the stress book. My sister is a professional musician. She's a choral conductor. And she creates magic trick experiences for her singers all the time. They are moving their bodies, singing, in rhythm, with other people for a shared purpose, communicating the musical intention of the composer. And singers in a choir know this experience where your sense of individuality dissolves and you just feel like you are part of this mass creating this art that all of you are sharing in. Dancers experience the same thing. I have experienced it on a dance floor. When I was swing dancing a lot, some guy walked past me and my partner and was like, get a room. He mistook what we were doing as sexual when actually it was erotic. We were moving our bodies in time for a shared purpose. It can happen while you're writing. It can happen literally doing anything, but it can also happen while you're masturbating, where you're moving your body in a rhythm, like you're, as you become aroused, you have these waves of tension that move through your body. And the trick is to notice when those waves of tension are accelerating and increasing intensity, taking a deep breath and then blowing a deep breath out to engage the parasympathetic nervous system and slow down the rate at which those waves of tension are increasing in intensity and speed. And you change the kind of stimulation that you're doing so that you're less directly on the genitals and more in the periphery of your body. And you allow the tension and the pleasure to spread in your body. And you keep doing it. Again, you you notice the waves of pleasure and tension are getting faster and more intense. And you take a deep breath and you exhale. You activate the parasympathetic nervous system. It's the brake system. You relax. You allow things to soften. You allow actual literal muscles to soften. And as the muscles soften from the tension, the pleasure is going to take up the space that the tension was taking up. And, you know, go through eight or 10 cycles of this. And whatever happens, don't have an orgasm. 
Because, like, what's the worst thing that could happen? You have an orgasm. Oh, no, too bad. Oh, you failed. Oh, too bad. No, there's there's truly no such thing as failure. Again, if you don't actually ride 100 miles, you only ride 70 miles. I mean, for crying out loud. That's already amazing. You have had a glorious experience. So it's not about actually achieving this uh, sense of your identity dissolving, your self as an individual dissolving. If you're doing this with a partner, you'll feel your individual identities dissolving and you're sort of like meshing into each other and into the universe. If you don't get there, it's not about that. It's about aiming in the direction of that experience. I compare this to yoga. Getting your body into the challenging posture is not the yoga. I'm never going to put my leg behind my head. I'm probably never going to do a handstand. I have a balance disorder. Some people's bodies are not built for all those postures, but that is the posture is not the yoga. Stretching in the direction of the posture is the yoga. So stretching your erotic experiences in the direction of the magic is the actual magic. How did I do it explaining that? <laughs> I think you did great. Makes total sense to me. Okay, good. <laughs> As you were talking about that and everything else we've been talking about today, it leads me to one final question for you, which is when it comes to making these lasting connections, changing your sex life and your relationship, it sounds like you got to have some practice. You got to be willing to put in some time to allow your partner to get to the same headspace as you and everything. And so some people who might read your work or listen to this podcast might say, but Emily, this all sounds like a lot of work. Aren't good relationships <laughs> supposed to be easy? You know, a lot of people think that good sex is just supposed to happen. And if it's not happening, then there's a problem. So what's your response to that? It's another one of the most common responses. Um, how do I get my partner on board? But Emily, I, if, if it doesn't happen spontaneously, then my partner doesn't want me enough. And again, what the science tells us, what the research tells us about people who sustain strong sexual connections over the long term is that they talk about sex a lot. They spend more time talking about it than they do having it because they prioritize it, because it matters to them in the same way that we prioritize and matters to us that we go to Timmy's baseball game, that we go to Jason's play, that we go to our friend's art gallery show, right? Like we put it in the calendar. We talk about making plans so that we create space for it. If it's a hobby, like if you play a sport together with your partner, then you talk about what went great the last game, what you'd want to try different at the last game. If cooking really matters to you, talk about what was awesome about when you tried this recipe last time and what you're going to try and do differently this next time and what you want to replicate this time. The couples who sustain a strong sexual connection treat their sexual connection as a third thing, a phrase I take from the essay Donald Hall wrote about his marriage to fellow poet Jane Kenyon, where he talks about the importance of third things in relationships. We do not spend our days gazing into each other's eyes. You do that when one is in trouble or during sex. But most of the time you spend with your mutual gaze turned toward a third thing, a site of joint ecstasy and interest, your favorite artist, your favorite sports team, your kids, for a lot of people, affective neuroscience, 
whatever the thing is that the two of you spend your time doing in this long-term partnership. And I believe that our erotic connection with our certain special someone, if it matters to us, it deserves to be a third thing, a site of joint interest, fascination, ecstasy. You talk about it because it matters in your relationship in the same way that your kids matter in your relationship. And it's not work, it's a hobby. In the same way that your sports team is a hobby. It might be essential to you as in your identity as part of your hobby, but it's still a hobby. Does that make sense? Makes total sense to me. And I love that way of thinking about sex and relationships. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Emily. It was truly a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and to get a copy of your latest book? Yes. So emilynagoski.com is the website that has links to all my socials. The book is available wherever books are sold. Special props to the audiobook this year. I put extra care into it and I'm really proud of it. And I think a lot of people's brains are done, cooked by life lately. And the audiobook might be a little bit easier to absorb than sitting down and reading a physical book. Yes, I can relate to that. Sometimes listening is easier than reading. And I'll be sure to include links to everything in the show notes. Thank you again so much for your time, Emily. It was great to have you here. Thank you. You're so delightful and kind. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Lee Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lee Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>